Hi, everyone. A quick message before we start today's podcast. ATS Scholar is planning a special themed collection on combating racism in health professions education. Relevant topics include teaching how to identify and interrupt microaggressions, curricula on health disparities, work on methods for diversifying incoming trainees, and tools for educators on how to reduce bias. You can learn more by visiting the link in this episode's show notes or by visiting us at atsjournals.org slash scholar submission. That's one word, atsjournals.org slash scholar submission. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's episode. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Stephanie Maximus, and today I'll be discussing uh, this really great new article called The Zentensivist Manifesto, Defining the Art of Critical Care, with our guest, Dr. Matt Shuba, who's a critical care physician at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Steph. Yeah, no problem. So um, just to give our listeners a little bit of background, um, I was hoping that you could tell us some more about the origin of the term Zentensivist. Like, where did that, who came up with it? Where did it come from? What prompted this discussion to take place? Sure. So um, I think it was a little bit over a year ago now, um, there was a conversation going on on Twitter about um, what's the most important things that we do in the, in the ICU. And uh, it, people were having a hard time coming up with a good answer for that. And finally, I got to the point, uh, a more experienced uh, intensivist uh, weighed in on it and said, you know, it seems like all we've learned is all the, you know, sort of intensive, aggressive things we do don't seem to make a difference. Um, so maybe it's time to do less. And he, he kind of called it the age of the lazy intensivist. And uh, that, that seemed maybe a little too strong for me. So I said, how about let's call it the Zen intensivist. And then uh, Josh Farkas uh, of the Palm Crit blog took the phrase and smashed it together. And, and that's how the, the phrase and the hashtags intensivist was born. And then since then, we've just had a lot of ongoing conversations amongst different groups uh, uh, who work in critical care since then. And it's kind of, you know, evolved into its own thing and taken on a life of its own. Yeah, it's really interesting because it seems like the concept and the philosophy is not necessarily new, but right. now there seems to be an actual name for it, um, which, yeah, which is kind of cool. I mean, language to me is very important. So it's it made me take a step back and say, well, why do we call the intensive care unit the intensive care unit? You know, should we, do you think, change the way that we refer to this place or, or physical place or metaphysical place that we actually sure. work? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I struggle with that a little bit. You know, we kind of pointed out in the article, like, uh, we're, we're, we're a little bit setting ourselves up to be overly interventional by sort of just the name, you know, in and of itself. Um, I'm a little now attached to the term intensivist because it's finally in the dictionary this year, which it never was before. And I think that's probably just because of the pandemic. Um, and I still think in general, uh, it serves a purpose because we should be providing, you know, more intensity of care than other environments. If you take the whole spectrum from preventive care to acute care, I, I think still we're technically the most intensive, but it doesn't mean we need to be as intensive as possible. 
Um, and I, I tried to find the origin of, of where that word came from. And the best I could find was that it was first mentioned in 1965, at least that's what the, the dictionary reference said, but uh, I can't find where it came from. So I, it's, it's kind of interesting that it's, it's not a little bit better delineated uh, where the actual origin of that phrase comes from. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's nice to kind of have these two things to sort of frame maybe the range of the range of philosophies within within the ICU or within critical care. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that uh, I think the reason that, you know, to get back to your other point about uh, I think a lot of people have felt this way, you know, you know whether they're as intensivists or not, uh, and they just didn't have a word for it. I think that's kind of the the fun of it is it's uh, it's it's a it's a play on words that intentionally combines things that don't seem to have anything to do with one another, um, and and I think that that appeals to people who who sort of have always embodied this philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of this philosophy, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the main tenets of this intensivist approach? Sure. Um, so in the paper, we go into detail on, uh, I, and we broke it up into, I think, you know, six or eight sections. Um, if I could distill it down a little further, the way that I would say, the way I would describe it is it's at its heart, it's minimalism. Um, but it's, it's minimalism that's grounded in a couple of, uh, of key points. Um, the, the essentials are uh, having a really firm understanding of, of critical care physiology and knowing what's, you know, sort of acceptable abnormals and what's not. Uh, having tolerance for risk, um, meaning that we don't need to necessarily investigate every, you know, turn over every stone, investigate every abnormal lab value, treat every abnormal lab value. Um, and then you take those two things, the risk tolerance and understanding of physiology, or, or what we say is clinical mastery. And those two things uh, are the foundation. And, and the goal of this minimalism is really to just maintain or restore humanism in, in the ICU. Um, so we want to try to make it so our patients can be awake, participatory as much as possible, um, spare them interventions that are unlikely to benefit them and, and things like that. So those are sort of the essentials and everything else uh, that we talk about is sort of an extension of those main principles. Yeah. And I, I like the way that you frame it in terms of um, moving more towards humanism within the ICU, uh, because it's very easy, I think, particularly as an outsider or maybe even as a learner when you're first being exposed to all of the high technology that we have access to in the ICU, how it seems very much like science fiction going on there or bordering on science fiction and machines and lines and tubes and you really very easily and very quickly lose that human, humanism and lose sight of patients uh, being individuals. And so um, it's it's it was, uh, just a breath of fresh air to me to think about the work that we do, uh, having a way to do the right thing for the patient and then also simultaneously emphasize that human aspect of it. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's easy. The, the more technology that we add uh, into the room and, and the more like sedate and everything else the patient is, it's very easy to lose track of that uh, as being a human being who, you know, had, uh, you know, personality goals, dreams and everything like that before they came to us. Um, so as much as we can sort of remove those kind of things that are unnecessary and maybe just there because we feel 
you know, we as clinicians feel better that we're doing them uh, when they actually could be harmful. Like, uh, you know, fortunately, we've learned a lot about how deep sedation is a bad thing and, uh, and you know, sort of sim similar things that are there more, maybe more for our convenience and for the patient's well-being uh, makes it a little bit easier for us to see the person and, and keep a focus on, um, you know, how can I actually help them in the situation that they're in rather than let's just kind of, you know, tweak all the numbers and make everything look appropriate, uh, you know, for, from our standpoint. Yeah, there is one, uh, there's a line in the piece uh, that stood out to me in terms of respecting abnormal physiology um, and kind of getting back to co common sense. Um, how, how would you and how do you operationalize that when you're rounding with a team in the ICU? How do you help people around you learn to recognize what is adaptive versus maladaptive? Yeah, that's it, it's that's a tough one, uh, and and this is where sort of the art comes into play. Uh, there's things I think that we all recognize that are probably more beneficial than not. I mean, it, it's pretty well accepted that permissive hypercapnia, for example, is something that that is you know at, at least uh, permissible if not beneficial. Um, the other things I think we just have to do a little bit better job defining shades of gray about. Um, you know, the problem with the electronic medical record as, as it stands is everything is sort of binary. It's either normal or it's abnormal. And so that means a potassium of 3.8 is a flagged as red. And do I really need to pay that close of attention to it? Probably not. Um, we had a conversation uh, recently online where somebody mentioned, maybe we can code it some other way, like a different color or something. If something was sort of outside the bounds of the 90, you know, the 95th percentile, but also something that we didn't necessarily need to overreact to. So I think uh, from systematically, that would be something that I'd like to see different um, because then people, you know, learners especially could focus on the things that matter, you know, uh, you know, somebody that's has a, you know, drastic abnormality uh, is something that we should pay attention to and try to nudge it in the right direction. Whereas things that are kind of in that gray zone, we can maybe uh, de-emphasize or, or, or even flat out ignore. Um, and until we have sort of a smarter health system like that or a smarter record, I think what it comes down to is um, just doing you know, a lot of coaching about, uh, you know, about what you think is uh, important and, and not important uh, in terms of abnormal values on rounds. And uh, so I, a lot of this involves a lot of metacognition for learners. So you have to kind of describe what you're, what you're uh, thinking about and how you think about it. But the other thing is, uh, and frankly, uh, which is unavoidable, is it, it, it you know, clinical experience is, is very important. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't want a, you know, a, a brand new resident or a brand new fellow to come into the unit and say, well, I think, you know, I want to be as intensive, so I'm just going to ignore everything and, and, and it'll all kind of work out okay. Um, <laughs> but, but on the other hand, you know, we, we do sort of train people to say, okay, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do next? What are you going to do here? You know, what are you going to do about this value? You know, a problem-based assessment can kind of quickly become, uh, you know, focusing on minutiae rather than, you know, putting the whole picture together. Uh, sometimes, I'll, you know, learners will present to me and they'll present every uh, symptom or problem, um, but then we don't really have like a unified picture of what's going on with the patient, you know, and that's, and, and, and then the other thing is realizing trajectory, uh, which is uh, another way that you can kind of uh, abide some of these abnormal values is just, you know, realizing disease trajectory is, uh, is probably one of the most important, I think, characteristics that an intensivist can pay attention to. And if the patient's doing well and they have mild abnormalities, I'm just probably going to look the other way on those kind of things. Yeah, it kind of gets back to the idea of framing everything in, in terms of the big picture of yes. a human uh, yes. that's in the bed in front of us. Yeah, so since, you, since we've sort of gone there um, in terms of education, 
Um, this raised a lot of questions to me in terms of thinking about, okay, well, if, if this is something that many of us should strive towards, towards being, becoming more of Zentensivists, um, then how can we teach our learners this style since presumably it's not something that necessarily comes automatically um, and you mentioned that we do need some, probably some degree of experience along with it, um, since the medical record isn't going to tell us, oh, an, a Zentensivist would act on this and not act on this other thing. Um, so how have you approached that, um, that style of teaching or coached your learners um, to come around to this? The, the most important thing, I think, is to uh, sort of um, center people and you know, uh, clinical, good clinical reasoning. And a lot of that uh, amounts to, you know, we talk about base rate statistics and things like that in the paper and, and just realizing like, um, you know, some people that come to the ICU have a pulmonary embolism or have acute coronary syndrome, but it doesn't mean you need to ass assess every single patient that comes in for those kind of things. So having, having an idea of base rate statistics and Bayesian reasoning is very important to say like, you know, even if I, if I, I have a patient who I really don't suspect has this problem. And if I get a test that suggests they do have that problem, I have to consider maybe that's a false positive, you know, those kind of, that, that kind of thinking. Um, what we do instead is we reward people for finding rare, odd little things. Um, and that, that's, that's what, you know, you, you get a, a gold star if you find a, a zebra. Um, whereas we don't necessarily reinforce, hey, that was a really good job you did by not trending that lab value we didn't need to know about. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing in terms of therapeutics is just realizing how uh, weak the evidence is for a lot of the things that we do. Um, and even the things that have good evidence, they have a small effect size. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's very easy to become seduced with the idea that, oh, I should do this because there was a paper that said it was a good idea once, um, but maybe had a very modest effect size and, and had potentially a uh, unlimited downside to it. And, and those are the, we don't really frame things in those ways. We frame things as like, well, there's a very small, you know, understandable, knowable risk, and there's a lot of benefit to it, which in reality, it's probably exactly the opposite. There's a pretty well-defined ceiling to the benefit, and there could be an unknown, you know, floor to, to um, uh, adverse reactions or, or, you know, things not going the way that we anticipated. So that's something we kind of think about as, uh, the term that I use, and I don't know if it's mine or not, but uh, therapeutic humility, I think, comes into play here to say, um, I, I have, uh, you know, I realize that there's limits to what I can offer. Um, I'm a human being, the interaction, the uh, interventions I have to offer uh, have limited, uh, you know, potential benefits. There's no miracles. Um, and I think we, we've learned that in critical care over time. There's, we don't, we don't have miracle treatments for anything. A lot of the things we do involve not doing things to people and showing a benefit to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always um, tell people the patients are getting better in spite of us. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and we're, luck we're lucky when they do. Exactly. And that's a key point. I mean, a lot of the times uh, if the patient gets better, uh, we, we pat ourselves on the back. And if the patient gets worse, we say, well, that was kind of bad luck. Uh, you know, and that's obviously not the way the world works. Yeah, it's probably the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, that you make a great point in that we should focus more than we are maybe hopefully already do, but focus a lot more on understanding, really understanding the evidence that gets thrown around a lot. You know, I think there are a lot of uh, acronyms and names of studies that people like to name drop as, as they round in the ICU, but 
actually recognizing, well, how, how good is that evidence and how much does it actually apply to my patient um, really gets at this idea of numeracy. And I think that that's certainly something that um, should get a lot more attention uh, throughout medical education, if not even before people land in medical school. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw something recently about um, maybe maybe high school students should actually be studying statistics in high school as opposed to calculus, because it may actually have much more bearing on the way that we just process data in our daily lives, now, let alone in, in medicine or when we're working. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something that every, all of us every day when we're making decisions about testing or therapeutics, we, we're, we're implicitly making uh, some of these uh, judgments based on information that's really incomplete. Um, and again, it's, it's all kind of done in a binary fashion. Like this is either a really good thing or a really bad thing. So it's a really good thing to do this. It's a really bad thing not to do it, um, which comes into that sort of, sort of you know, commission bias that, that I think you know, is kind of human nature. Um, but we really have to like, sort of stay humble and, and realize that you know, we can only do so much and, and take people so far with what we have to offer. And you know, I, I think you know, you know we, we all realize, uh, those of us that practice in intensive care, that you know, 90% of what we do is supportive care. Um, there's, no, there's no magic bullets. Um, we're just trying to get people through this and, and allow whatever natural restitution can happen in the background to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then here we are um, in August of this year. So we're early in the academic year. So one of the other uh, lines that I thought was really helpful to emphasize is just to normalize uncertainty. You know, that not only do our learners, you know, feel uncertain about what's going on, but um, we or our mentors, right, also oftentimes we don't have a 100% understanding of what's going on or know what the trajectory of the patient will be and just kind of uh, growing more comfortable in that discomfort. Absolutely. Um, a lot of us have a hard time saying, I don't know, or I'm not sure about that. Fortunately, it's one of my favorite things to say. So it comes pretty naturally to me. Um, I just, uh, there's no, there's no need to, you know, there's this whole, especially for early learners, this whole fake it till you make it mentality, which I don't really think is that helpful. People end up sort of, uh, you know, building a lot of bad habits with those kind of, uh, that kind of thought process. And then you realize, you know, you get to be a new attending, you realize, wow, I have no idea why I do this thing that I do. Just the thing mm -hmm. I saw being done, I didn't question it. And now it's part of my practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I still have that all the time. I mean, it's not, I'm not going to pretend like I don't have it either. But it's something that I think we should kind of pay attention to, uh, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about the way we reason through problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely resonates for me. Um, so, uh, Kind of, again, going back to this sort of a contrast between maybe the classic way people think about critical care medicine or an intensivist's work versus the Zentensivist. Um, how would you as a Zentensivist handle criticism that you didn't act aggressively enough? Like how, how do you approach this sort of clashing of cultures? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's kind of the most fundamental uh, argument that 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 I hear and unfortunately it's it's uh, it's pretty much a false dichotomy uh, what it comes down to is um, when to act and and how to act so 
I think sometimes there's this uh, perception created that, uh, you know, maybe I'll have a patient who's, you know, in profound shock and I'm going to, I don't know, drink coffee or meditate or something. But, um, you know, in those moments that are critical, you know, time critical moments, so so-called golden hour moments, uh, you know, I, I don't think as intensivists would act any different than, than, than uh, you know, I think the care at that point would be probably almost recognizable, uh, almost, uh, sorry, almost undistinguishable um, from, from what I would call routine care. Um, somebody needs, a, you know, their shock reversed, they need early antibiotics and those kind of things. I think those things are, are not in question. The question then, the, the, the two things that come up at that point uh, are in that moment, what kind of things do you do just because uh, or just in case? Like, um, well, this patient's kind of breathing fast. So we better intubate them now because they might tire out later. Like that, that's to the point where it, you know, gets taken too far, I think. So, and, and again, that's a judgment. There are people who that that's absolutely the case, but, you know, you can kind of feel the thresholds for initiating uh, invasive care is different for different people. Um, but it doesn't mean that we don't all have the same goal in mind in terms of shock reversal, you know, early antibiotics, things like that. I think where the difference really comes in, though, is after the, that first critical hour, um, the next 12 hours, the next 36 hours, um, what kind of things are you doing? How aggressively are you trying to liberate this person from the things that we've done to them? Um, how, how aggressively are you de-resuscitating, removing catheters, um, you know, just kind of trying to restore um, some sense of uh, going back to normal for this person rather than, okay, we're going to keep training this lab, you know, for the next 24 hours, just because we want to see it be normal without necessarily a, a sound uh, rationale for it. Um, we better just do this test just in case, just to be safe. Um, everybody with X condition needs Y, you know, diagnostic, you know, those, that's the kind of reasoning that I think needs to be challenged. Um, and because uh, I mean, I, I think uh, in the end, the, the people that work with, with people like, you know, who, who consider themselves intensivists, I, I don't necessarily think we're thought of as being less proactive. It's just more of an issue of, um, you know, how far do you take it? And then what do you do at each step? Uh, an example would be patient comes with new septic shock to the ICU, you quickly restore their blood pressure, maybe you're able to get away with peripheral uh, vasopressors instead of putting it in a central line. Um, and then instead of, uh, you know, overreacting to every minor change in their hemodynamic status, maybe you just realize that you have to just kind of wait for the antibiotics to kick in, wait for the other interventions, the source control, whatever else, whatever else you did, rather than, you know, going in the room every 30 minutes and doing a fluid assessment and seeing if you can give them more fluid to get them off the pressors. I think those are, that's kind of the, um, the contrast that I like to draw between the two styles. Yeah, I think that's why I'm glad that you didn't land on the lazy intensivist as the, yeah, right. <laughs> as the term, since that I think would um, definitely lead people to believe that you weren't doing what was appropriate for the patient. I think you used a different line in the article, minimally invasive critical care, which mm -hmm. also sounded, that that sounds like it strikes the right balance of, you know, um, you said deliberate inaction and measured activity, uh, which I think really gives a sense of, okay, we're not just sitting around, we're acting according to our understanding of the evidence as it applies to this patient um, in a timely fashion. And we are have the ability to take a step back and apprise the entire, the entire picture and shift if that becomes necessary. 
Yes, uh, the the phrase that that we've used in, in other uh, other uh, writings or in other places is minimally invasive and maximally attentive. Um, so we're it's not that we're not paying attention to what's going on. We're and in fact, it's actually it's actually harder to do this than than it is to um, reflexively, um, you know, do X, Y, and Z. Any you know, it, it's harder to to do less than it is to do more, actually. It takes more work. It takes more cognitive work. It takes more metacognition explanation to the team you're working with. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually pretty labor intensive. Mm -hmm. So in, in the end, it actually is probably more exhausting than saying, okay, rails give Lasix, uh, you know, replace low potassium anytime the number turns red. You know, those kind of things uh, that are easier to do in a reflexive fashion or, you know, bolus, bolus fluid for any low urine output, you know, those kind of things that are done reflexively. It's easier to do. Everyone feels better that they're doing something. Um, and uh, our approach uh, is, is the opposite of that. And it actually takes more work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out because I think that there is often in the ICU a pressure from a lot of different, uh, a lot of different aspects, you know, within the team, uh, from administration, from patients' families, from nursing, you know, to do and do and do. Um, and I think it sounds like you're making the point that you are doing a lot by taking a step and trying to understand what is best for the patient and what's actually going on and allowing physiology to play out uh, as opposed to getting in the way. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, and so then the other uh, questions that came up for me were around how social media has sort of played into the evolution of this term. Um, and specifically Twitter, I think, was where a lot of this discussion was taking place. Um, so, you know, maybe some pros and cons from your end of how social media has um, has supported the growth of this uh, concept um, and maybe also any downsides that you've experienced uh, interacting with folks there. Yeah, as, as you mentioned uh, early in the podcast, I, I, or early in our talk, there's, this is something that I think a lot of people identified with already. Uh, they just didn't have a name for it. So in that way, it was easy to get a conversation going because people are excited about this idea and especially people that have been practicing for a while and have sort of seen the, uh, the tide changes in critical care over time. Um, and, and then for a, for a new generation of people, I think it's, it's, it's brought people into this idea that, you know, uh, a lot of us came into intensive care because we really like, um, you know, we, we like doing procedures and we like physiology and that's, that's perfectly okay. And we just want to make sure that we're, we're doing it for the right reasons and not, not just to satisfy our own curiosities or, or, or uncertainty, you know, that feeling of uncertainty. So for the, for the most part, it's, it's been really positive. Um, the nice thing about it is intensivist philosophy is it's very inclusive and it's patient centered. So it's, it's kind of hard to be against that. Um, so there's been very, very little, uh, I think, um, sort of, you know, uh, reaction against it for the most part. Um, sometimes people will ask the questions kind of that you have asked about, well, you know, how do you just not do something or, you know, things like that. And um, so that just allows us to, you know, develop the conversation further. Um, the other thing is, I think that I, I try to emphasize is that you don't have to be a critical care physician, nor even a physician to be as intensivist in, in philosophy. So you can work in any environment. 
uh, and you know, in medicine, and you can be have any role and still kind of embody that same philosophy. I've had a lot of enthusiasm from nurses, in particular, about this this philosophy and, and trying to um, trying to embody it. It certainly impl uh, applies to the inpatient setting and applies to the pre-hospital emergency medicine setting. Um, so there's a lot of benefit to it. So I think overall, it's been very positive, and it's been really nice to hear perspectives from people who work in very different settings with very different levels of resources. Um, so people from highly resource settings like us to um, you know, low and middle income countries and there's still enthusiasm for it uh, in, in those settings. So it's, uh, and that way it's been really exciting to, to hear different people's input on it. You bring up um, different settings. Uh, so that sort of takes me to this idea of how intensive care medicine or critical care medicine is practiced in the US as compared to in other parts of the world. Um, is, do you find that some of this discussion is actually more relevant to be having here just because of how, how heavily resource intensive we are in medicine as compared to in other environments? And I'm curious about if your co-authors um, who do represent some other health systems um, actually had different experiences with it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I think um, Kylie and Shagan particularly, um, uh, who work in Australia and UK respectively, um, definitely have a different uh, feeling for for what intensive care looks like or what acute care looks like based on on the settings that they work in. And um, Kylie, exact, uh, for example, works in the emergency department and. Um, and a hospital that doesn't necessarily have every service available to it. So having her perspective uh, was was really valuable. Um, and you know, for the most part, I don't think their feelings were very different. I think there some of their you know pressures uh, are different uh, in terms of resources and things like that. And um, you know, there's different societal norms about what's the value of intensive care in those settings. Um, but but overall, the the message still still held, holds well in those settings. Now, for us, you know, uh, I work at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Augie Gadget works at the Mayo Clinic. You know, we work at very well-resourced places. And yeah, it'd be easy to every time somebody comes into the uh, ICU wheel and every piece of technology that you have and, you know, play with all the bells and whistles and, and get really excited about those things or over-medicalize, uh, you know, or, or you know, over-intensivize care for people who, who maybe aren't very likely to benefit from it. So that's our unique challenge uh, in the United States, particularly is to, is to deal with those kind of issues and just realize that, uh, again, sort of that piece of therapeutic humility, there's only so much that we have to offer in the best scenario. And, and then somebody who's maybe uh, debilitated has poor functional status, we probably have even less benefit to offer. Um, so just to have clear conversations about those kind of things is really important. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um... And then, you know, doing that shift to the early goal-directed palliation, like you talked about, which yeah. um, I think is a great opportunity for reframing again the way that we talk about end-of-life care as not a way to let go and give up and we're not doing anything for you anymore, but this is actually just as important and just as urgent as the rest of our other hyper-medicalized components of care that we offer in the ICU. Absolutely. I, I view that piece as as important as the early, you know, resuscitation piece. And that's why, we, why I, that's why we came up with that term, um, because it, it, there is that same sort of urgency. You have somebody who you know is about to be, uh, you know, sort of over-medicalized, over-intensivized, receive therapies that are unlikely to benefit or less likely to benefit. Um, and you want to try to spare them from it maybe early, 
um, clarify goals quickly, um, acknowledge you know how much better we can get them from where they are right now, rather than waiting five days into this day to then maybe have a family meeting about it. You know, the, the, the horse is out of the barn by that time. Yeah, it seems like there's a golden hour for that as well. Absolutely. For sort of uh, uh, couching everything in the right terms or, or clarifying values early on um, to get the entire therapeutic team and the family and the patient all on the same page. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so here we are almost six months into the COVID-19 pandemic. So how has this played uh, into sort of management of patients with, with COVID and also this idea of um, measured adoption of uh, data and literature, uh, you know, the speed of and chaos of the pandemic, and then trying to balance this um, in a way that is in line with this intensivist philosophy? Fortunately, I think um, the the pandemic and the response to the pandemic has really validated a lot of the ideas that we've had, uh, you know, prior to. Um, <clears throat> uh, me and a couple others wrote, wrote a letter uh, about this uh, in, in another journal um, about treading lightly in a pandemic, and and really what that was about was not jumping to every new therapy. Uh, it seemed like in March, particularly. Uh, you would see something new online every day. Hey, did you hear about this new exciting therapy for COVID? It worked really well for this person in this setting. Um, and it seemed like something like that was happening every day or maybe every other day or, or maybe many times in one day. And that uh, gave me sort of this deep visceral feeling that, uh, you know, we were moving in the wrong direction. Um, I understand the, the feeling of needing to intervene and needing to do something uh, beneficial uh, when you feel like things are going out of control and feeling like we were being faced with a completely new entity. I, I understand why many of the therapies were, that were tried have been tried. Um, but if you look, if you think back to your experience in March, um, you did things that you have never done for a critically ill patient with ARDS before or, or a critically ill patient with circulatory shock before. Um, this provision of these uh, monoclonal antibodies and uh, you know, intubating anyone who was on over six liters nasal cannula. There was a lot of things that you just would have never done before. Um, and so to change our practice based on really incomplete information, I think was a pretty bad idea. And, uh, and, and we're learning that now. I mean, we've seen, you know, tocilizumab and hydroxychloroquine have kind of uh, fallen to the graveyard uh, of, of therapies. And those were things that were thought to be very important at the beginning um, based on, again, very incomplete information. And what have we found that works so far? Well, we kind of already knew that steroids were helpful in ARDS, at least if you paid attention, at least if you're a believer in the DEXA ARDS study, and that's the only thing that's really borne out in a, in a significant way. Um, and then everything else is uh, supportive care and high quality, you know, lung protective ventilation, the things that we've been doing all along. So while I understand the, the fears and the, the feeling that we needed to do something, uh, I also felt like it was it was not the right approach. Um, and it's something that I think we're, we're going to have to live with for a while now and, and have to rethink the next time we have one of these um, type of pandemics uh, that comes about. Because um, really, to get back to the, the point we made earlier, you know, people are much happier to make errors of commission than omission. And it feels much better to, to have tried a therapy um, than not to and I, again, I think that comes down to the piece about therapeutic humility. If you 
don't realize that the things we do are, are have marginal benefits, then you're more likely to, to, you know, provide therapies that don't have a good evidence base. We still don't know if uh, convalescent plasma works, for instance, and some 35,000 people have received it. It's, it's really concerning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's always this pressure to, to do, do, do. Um, and then there's the whole idea of don't just do something, stand there, uh, at least for a minute. And right. Uh, to, you know, take in all the, all the information and, and to act based on the few things that we do know. Right. Um, so, cause fortunately we do have several decades of, of critical care uh, experience and evidence. So those things hopefully should not be changing anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I think if you, if you uh, use your clinical judgment and you decide that this particular therapy might benefit this patient or this small subset of patients, then, you know, I still think you get to use your, your, you know, your judgment and your experience. But I also think that means you don't apply it to every single patient who comes in with the problem. I mean, that's, to me, that's only supportable if you have high quality evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that makes total sense. Well, if there's anything to take away from this, it's um, a reminder uh, to espouse that therapeutic humility and um, just remember that for all of the data and literature that we are consuming as rapidly as we are right now, or that we're reaching back to and, and reviewing, um, that still with every individual patient that we encounter, we have to, you know, take take stock of, of what's going on with that individual and to be, feel very humble and um, hopefully they get better in spite of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Matt. This was such a pleasure chatting with you um, and just flushing out some more of these ideas. And I really look forward to um, more discussions about this intensivist philosophy and how it develops over the coming months and years. Excellent. Thanks so much, Steph. It was great to be here. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly, a podcast series from ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society section on medical education. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.